Welcome to the Teachers Podcast in association with Classroom Secrets, the podcast that's here to help teachers. Whether it's discussing the latest issues in education or sharing top tips for use in the classroom, if you work in education or want to know more about the sector, then this is the podcast for you. Now, please welcome your host, former teacher, life work balance advocate and successful business owner, Claire Riley. Hi everyone and thank you for listening. I recorded this episode prior to schools closing due to coronavirus at Leeds Beckett University. Whilst I was there, I talked to Professor Jonathan Glazard, who was involved with training teachers of the future, all about mental health and special educational needs. I wanted to release this episode mid-lockdown to help you get prepared for the RSE curriculum coming in September. This is a really great time to put thought into how it will work in your school and what other measures children might need as a result of what's happening now. Jonathan had some really insightful thoughts about how we deal with children's poor mental health in schools and how effective interventions that we try to implement are. It's a really useful listen for any educator out there. Let's get to the interview. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me on the Teachers Podcast today. Pleasure. So we're here now in your office. Um, I'm feeling very tropical. Um, if you're on the YouTube, then you'll be able to see. But if you're on the podcast, I've got lots of lovely plants behind me. It makes me look good in my dress. So thank you. And, and can I just say, this plant was actually uh, bought for me by my doctoral, my lovely doctoral students. Oh, wow. Um, last week. So um, we're showcasing it is um, looking good. a present from the students. And I am quite into plants as well. And I have noticed, I was like, oh... This is an indoor plant and what I'm pleased to see is that it's not drowning um, because sometimes the soil is really wet, so well done you. Um, So, we're uh, we're in your office, we're at uh, Leeds Beckett University. So, tell me everything, like who are you, how did you get here today, where have you been? So, I'm Jonathan Glazard, I'm Professor um, Mm -hmm. of Inclusive Education. Um, in the Carnegie School of Education mm-hmm. um, at Leeds Beckett University. Um, my background is that I, I'm a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, I taught, um, I trained to become a teacher and then taught for 10 years um, in a primary school, uh, in two primary schools actually. Um, and um, I also um, took on the role of SENCO. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's where I developed my passion really for, for inclusion and special educational needs, inclusive education. Um, so I taught, I taught in one school for nine years, um, and then I got a promotion and became assistant head teacher mm-hmm. in another school. And then I'd always, kind of, always wanted to um, have a leading role in training teachers. So mm-hmm. that was kind of always there in as an ambition. Um, and I saw a job, and um, and that's when I applied for it, and then moved into moved out of school. Um, and into university teaching. Mm-hmm. Wow, so that's how you decided to move. So why why did you choose primary school? Um, okay, so initially I wanted to be a secondary school teacher. So I wanted to be history a history teacher. So I did A-level history. Mm-hmm. Um, but back, <laughs> back in the day, it was, the exams were very, very hard. I'm, I'm not mm-hmm. saying they're not hard now, but, yeah. but, but it, was, it was a particularly hard year. Mm. Um, and only four people in my year group passed wow. um, history. And um, so I passed um, and got a grade C, but I needed to get a grade B to do history. Mm-hmm. So I didn't get 
um, into university. I didn't meet any of my offers to do history. Um, so I thought I was in that position um, after I got my A-level results thinking, what do I do? And mm -hmm. I thought, oh, um, I'd gone into a primary school previously and mm -hmm. had some experience. So I thought, well, actually, I quite enjoyed that. So um, mm -hmm. I'll do a teacher training degree in primary education. And that's what I did. So, so, I, so it changed my path, actually. Yeah. I just find that really interesting because I used to be a secondary teacher. Then I went into primary afterwards and I did it for the love of the subject. So you were going to be, so you were going to do history because you wanted to be a teacher anyway. Mm. So you just found a different way around. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Yeah. That's good. I like that. Um, so obviously you've mentioned when you were in school, you became Senko. Was that just because there was an opening or they needed somebody to do it? Or did you feel like this is something that I want to sort of take on now? Yeah, I wanted to take it on because it was it was always something I was passionate about working mm -hmm. with children um, who had special educational needs, working with children who were, I guess, marginalised, mm -hmm. um, and and I felt that I could make a real difference there, mm -hmm. um, and it was something that um, nobody else wanted to do in the school. Yeah, and it's a really difficult job. It's a very demanding job. There's an awful lot of work involved mm. in it. There's there's an awful lot of paperwork and and liaison with parents and and mm. liaison with different agencies. Um, and, and it's something that I thought I could do, that I would enjoy, that I would make a difference in. And how do you think that role then has helped you sort of in your teacher training uh, journey? I think it's been significant because because that's where I initially developed my, my interest mm -hmm. um, in special educational needs and, and my knowledge. Um, I then decided to do a master's degree whilst mm -hmm. I was still teaching in school. Um, focusing on special educational needs so that developed my knowledge further mm -hmm. um, and then I moved into teacher education and I took responsibility for a lot of modules mm -hmm. um, on special education and inclusion yeah. um, and that that really became the focus of my teaching and I then decided to do a doctorate mm -hmm. um, again focusing on special education yeah I think it's amazing because I remember doing my PGCE and I'd, if we if we had a session to help us, because obviously I did a PGC, so you don't get as much. It must have been an hour or something, you know. So to know that you've, you know, you've got somebody at the university who mm. has this knowledge that you can tap into and such a depth of knowledge, I think so, is so amazing. So I, I did a four-year course mm -hmm. um, in primary education, and I did nothing on special education wow. needs at all. So so then, um, a year into my teaching career, I became a senko and mm. had no underpinning knowledge. Uh, and that's when I started to think, actually, this is not good enough. You know, mm. actually, trainee teachers, you know, need input. And that's mm. that's really what kind of motivated me to to really focus on on special education within within the university sector, because I felt, you know, I didn't get any input during my yeah. training and I wanted them to have that input. And what's great about that is you've seen that you didn't have it and then you've made it happen, which, mm. to be fair, at that level is quite... A big thing, mm. um, because there's not that many teacher training universities around, is there really? You know, not mm. every university does teacher training. Well done, mm. well done. Mm. Um, okay, so you've already said that you moved into teacher training because you saw an opening and you thought, yeah, I want to do that. Um, so I'm just looking at I've got so many questions for you because we had okay. a conversation on the phone. So one of the things that um, I think that you can help us with so I've mentioned that I didn't get a lot um, on inclusion or SEN or anything like that on my PGCE. And it wasn't in-depth. I think, you know, teachers can go into the classroom feeling unprepared. If you had to tell a teacher one to three things that they should really know 
about inclusion, what would they be? I think, first of all, um, it's important that teachers know that inclusion is it's an ongoing process mm -hmm. um, and it's different for every child. So, you know, you can't just um, do a session, say, for example, on autism and, and think that actually all those strategies that you've been introduced mm -hmm. to will work for, for that particular child. So, so it's knowing that um, it's an ongoing process and, and that you, you constantly need to reflect on your practices mm -hmm. um, to meet the needs of individual children. So I think that's one key thing, really. Um, I think um, understanding that children with um, special educational needs don't necessarily need anything like wildly different to everybody else. They mm. just need good inclusive teaching. Yeah. And good inclusive teaching will benefit all children. Yeah. So I think that's really, really key. Um, I think having, you know, starting from where the child is in their development, so knowing where that child is in their mm. development and building from that is really, really important. Mm. And having realistic um, realistic expectations of what that child can yeah. achieve, I think yeah. is also really, really important. Yeah. So I think what I'm, what I'm saying really and, and, is... And, and both ways, I guess, as well, having realistic expectations that aren't um, too low as well. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So, 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 not assuming that because they've got special educational needs, they can't achieve because yeah. because actually they can be extremely able. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the one of the dangers is that people associate special educational needs with low ability, yeah. and actually, a child could have a physical impairment, mm -hmm. they could have a hearing impairment, a visual impairment, and be extremely bright. Yeah. Um, so, having very high expectations of all children, mm -hmm. um, I think, is really really important. Um, but I think what I'm advocating really is a common sense approach yeah. to inclusion. And um, I think one of the one thing that has always worried me is that teachers and particularly trainee teachers think that they're not capable of actually supporting mm. children with special educational yeah. needs because they feel that they need some kind of specialised teaching or specialised approaches. Um, and that isn't the case, you know, actually... All teachers mm. are teachers of children with special educational needs and yeah. all teachers actually can teach them. Mm. And I think one of the problems of having um, external professionals coming in and, and external professionals such as educational psychologists fulfil a really important role. But one of the problems with that is it disempowers the teacher mm. and they start to think, actually, I can't do that because I'm not a specialist. And yeah. I think that's very dangerous mm. because actually as a teacher, we should be able to teach all children. I think as well, just sort of writing a note from what you said there, part of it, I think, is, you know, we do get a specialist in and then we expect from that three-hour session that we get to be perfect. Mm. And then it's like, we don't want to do it if we're not perfect. But actually, like you said, it, it is a journey and, mm. and you're going to get better at it as you go on and maybe, you know, you're not going to get everything right. Yeah, yeah, But yeah. you're working towards yeah. getting it better. And I think, you know, you might have a child in your class one year with autism and then you might have a child in another year with autism and whatever you tried the first time around that you found worked might not work absolutely and you just have to be able to absolutely trusted to test things yeah and that's where the the, the you know the, the ability to be reflective and actually think well that didn't work for that child but this might work for this child and yeah. change what you're doing for different children yeah. so i was reading some research by um an academic she's retired now called barbara coe um, who used to teach me at Sheffield University and um, and she wrote a paper called In Good Faith and Effort mm. and basically what she argued in that paper is that parents don't expect you, parents of children with special education needs don't expect you to know all the answers and mm. come up with all the solutions but they expect you to have 
you know, to work in good faith and to actually try things out and reflect on things yeah. um, and actually create a sense of, um, you know, belonging for that child and make yeah. that child feel included. And you might not know all the answers, but actually you're working within that good yeah. faith all the time. And I think that's quite important. I think you're right on that with parents, but the interesting kind of counter thing here, do you think sort of head teachers and SLT are okay with that? Because I, I do feel sometimes it might be, well, why didn't it work? You know, sometimes as a teacher, I think you can feel that you can't try things out because they have to be right first time. Mm, Does that mm, make sense? Mm. I think, you know, and I think that's not just the case for, for children with special educational needs. Yeah. Um, I think actually now new teachers are going into teaching mm. um, and there is pressure on them to feel that they're getting things right, you know, right from the beginning. Yeah. And, you know, there's pressure on them to, to, to deliver outstanding teaching right yeah. from the beginning. And actually, learning to be a teacher is an ongoing process. So when I went into teaching, we were allowed to kind of grow and develop in that role and make mistakes and reflect on those mistakes. And mm. I think it's real, that's really, really important. And we need to go back to that. We, yeah. we shouldn't be expecting, um, you know, early career teachers to just hit the ground running. Mm. We should be giving them time to grow and develop and try things out. And, and actually, experienced teachers should be doing that as well. You know, we need we need to give all teachers that chance to try things out and reflect on what they're doing. Yeah, because I think, you know, we by the time you get to the end of your PGC or your teacher training, you know what you've got to do to get. Um, I know they're not graded anymore, but you know what what you've got to do to get to the highest point. But I remember a few years into teaching, thinking I don't know what I'm working towards anymore, um, and you, you kind of forget. And so yeah, the experienced teachers kind of all need to be in the same thing because. You come out of uni and you know everything, but it only takes a few years for you to feel like maybe you don't know anything anymore, which is not true. But I think you your feel confidence can actually decline, yeah, which is quite I mean, interesting. Yeah. I've never, I've never really understood why that happens, but, yeah. but definitely you come out of, of teacher training thinking you know you're going to change the world, yeah. and actually then ten years down the line you're questioning it. <laughs> yeah, and I definitely feel that happened to me. My confidence definitely declined, and it wasn't necessarily any factors other than myself. But teachers, you know, can be self sabotages and that mm. kind of thing. Mm. Um, so I find that really interesting. So. When we talked on the phone, um, we talked about mental health. Um, so do you want to tell me what you've learned about mental health in the last few years? Yeah, so um, mental health really became a big focus for me, I guess, three years ago um, when I, I took on my current role as professor um, at Leeds Beckett University. And we created a centre of excellence for mental health in schools. Mm -hmm. um, and then I was asked if I would lead the research within that centre. So that, that's when it became... Um, a real focus for me but it was also at the time when the government was prioritizing mental health so it was mm -hmm. the time when the government was kind of releasing the green paper yeah. which set out the government's five-year strategy in 2017 mm -hmm. um, so yeah so it's, it's become really quite a recent focus for me but it's become a real area of passion mm -hmm. um, interestingly um, mental health was never um, identified within the, the Special Educational Needs Code of Practice un, until 2015 mm -hmm. when the Code of Practice was actually rewritten and then mental health for the first time was identified as a category of special educational need. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so it's interesting how things have changed over time. Yeah. So what do you understand by mental health then? Because we all use the word, don't we? Well, the words. Yeah. But um, what, what should we understand by it? So I take my definition from the World Health Organization, mm -hmm. um, who define me basically mental health as a state of well-being, mm -hmm. um, in which every individual is able to make a positive contribution to their day-to-day yeah. -day life and make a contribution to their community and to um, 
their lives and their jobs basically so, so it's somebody who's able to be productive mm-hmm. um, and contribute in a meaningful way um, I see mental health as um, as, a, as a spectrum um, which ranges from being mentally healthy to being mentally ill so mental yeah. illness is is kind of the extreme of mm. that spectrum but actually there's a whole other extreme called you know which is all around being mentally healthy and I think one of the problems is that we've you know, we've had this stigmatisation of mental health um, for many, many years. And what we're now trying to do is destigmatise mental yeah. health. But I think the reason for that stigmatisation is that we've automatically assumed that mental health is the same as mental illness. Yes. And, and that's, that's the, just what I was thinking. You know, and, 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 and I guess really what I'm trying to emphasise is that mental illness is only one facet yeah. of mental health. Yeah. That's kind of where I'm going as well, because... I've been doing quite a few episodes recently about mental health and life-work balance and well-being. And I think I'm quite conscious about the words that I use because I'm thinking, but if I say mental health, then we, we, we naturally kind of think of that as poor mental health, but we don't necessarily use the word before yeah, it. And then you yeah, think, can yeah. I use the word poor? And, and, and it can be like, we need to really think about how we are... Um, the words we're using so that we we all understand yeah, the yeah, same yeah. thing, if that makes sense. Yeah. So mental health includes mental wellness, um, mm-hmm. you know, being mentally well or being mentally healthy. Um, it's not just about mental illness and, and we really need to get that message across. Um, I think that's really key. But I was reading some research about, um, about primary school teachers' attitudes towards mental health. This mm-hmm. is really interesting. Um, so the research suggests that primary school teachers are reluctant to use the term mental health with, with young children. Mm-hmm. Um, they prefer to use the word, words like feelings and emotions, etc., mm-hmm. rather, than, rather than mental health. Now, this is interesting because this, I think, can lead to a stigmatisation of mental health. It can perpetuate that stigma yeah. around mental health. So why are they reluctant to use that term mental health, mm. but they're okay with using physical health? Yeah. Know, they're using physical health all the time mm. um, with young people. They're talking about physical activity, etc., and physical exercise, but, but actually they're reluctant to use the term mental health. And I think it's because they're automatically associating mental health with mental illness. Yes. And actually what A we need to thing. do is we need to broaden people's understanding so that people are talking about mental wellness or being mentally healthy. Yeah. And we need to achieve that parity, I think, between... We still need to go further to achieve the parity between physical health and mental health. Mm-hmm. Um so I think, yeah, I think yeah. we should be using the term mental health with young children because actually it's not something that we should be shying children away from and, and thinking that somehow it's going to yeah. be a danger to them because because actually they need to know about it. And talking more about the fact that everybody has mental health. That's yes. the thing that everybody has. Yeah. Um, you know, and like you say, you're either mentally healthy or you're mentally ill or, or you might be somewhere on the spectrum in You between. might fluctuate. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Thank you. Okay, right. So, what do you think about the government's policy on mental health, then? Ah, okay. So, I think, well, it was good that Theresa May in 2017 was kind of instrumental in in producing the Green Paper, in in getting that paper, you know, produced, because that actually outlines the five-year strategy. Um, I have mixed feelings about it. So, um, yeah, so I think it's good that the government are kind of prioritising it and, and focusing on it. It's good that Theresa May said that mental health was one of the burning... Children's mental health was one of the burning injustices of our time and Mm -hmm. and that we needed to address it. That was good. Um, And it was good that they were flagging it up and saying this is a really key priority. However, in the Green Paper, 
um, the government said that they were only going to roll out their proposals to about a quarter of schools. Well, between a fifth and a quarter of schools. Well, that isn't good enough, actually. Um, You know, because if we're thinking about um, support that children need, you know, um, so which schools are going to get the support and which schools won't get the support, which schools will get the funding, which schools won't get the funding, Um, then it becomes a postcode lottery as to where you live. Um, Well, we know that mental health, um, you know, children you know, regardless of social background, can, can experience poor mental health. Yes. So so actually, why can't all schools get that support? Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing I would say. Um, secondly, I feel that there's a clinicalisation of mental health. And it's not just me that feels like this. There are other academics um, who argue that there's a clinicalisation of mental health. And what I mean by that is there's a clinical model being implemented in schools. Okay, so the government are training a new um, brand of professional called the Education and Mental Health Practitioners. Now, the idea is that these practitioners will will complete a training course and they'll go into schools and provide children with interventions, um, therapeutic interventions, counselling, CBT, etc. and different other therapies. so that children get the support in school rather than mm-hmm. being rather than sitting on a, one, a long waiting list yeah. and being referred to CAMS. Yeah. Children can get fast support in school. Now, although that sounds really, really good, um, there, there is an issue um, in clinicalising mental health and, and assuming that children always need clinical intervention mm. because actually the vast majority of children, I would argue, with poor mental health don't need clinical intervention. They don't need therapies. They don't need counselling they don't need CBT now some children do some young people do need that but they are the children at the most severe end yeah um you know so I'm not saying that you know counselling isn't important it's very important for children who need it but but my concern is that we have this clinical model being implemented in schools and actually what we know is that the the majority of children with poor mental health will benefit from things like physical activity um, social connectivity, so actually having friends and working within w- within groups and teams. They will benefit from a sense of belonging in the school. Um, they'll benefit from good self-esteem. They'll benefit from, a, from an assessment process that actually boosts their self-esteem rather yeah. than, you know, tells them they're failures. Yes, yes. Um, they'll benefit from, from a curriculum that's rich and exciting um, and broad. So there's lots of kind of non-clinical... Um, interventions I think that children would benefit from mm. um, and we shouldn't be just assuming that children need that clinical intervention I think it can it's be not quite a quick fix is it no I think it can be quite dangerous so yeah so I think what do I think about the government's policy I feel that the government by by actually saying actually schools can do more mm. um, around mental health well there's an issue there because teachers are already really really stretched mm. you know teachers teachers workloads are massive mm. teachers key responsibility um, is to educate children and young people and it's to deliver the curriculum. Teachers are not mental health experts. No. They're not, you know, they're not clinicians. They're not health health professionals. They're educators. So that's, that's one key thing there that I would say. Um, I feel that the government's emphasis on, on kind of placing mental health into schools is actually absolving the government of addressing the real, what I would call the real systemic factors that create poor mental health. So when we look at the causes of poor mental health, the causes are rooted in social circumstances often. Yeah. I mean, the causes can sometimes be rooted within within the child's biology, but often the causes are rooted within social circumstances such as poverty, yeah. 
adverse childhood experiences, etc., parental conflict, violence, abuse, neglect, mm-hmm. etc. Um, why isn't the government addressing that? Yeah. Those factors, because yeah. actually those factors, the problem is schools can only do so much. So yeah. actually they can do all this stuff around mental health, but children will still go back to those yeah. homes and those communities that's actually causing the poor yeah. mental health. Yeah. So, so the government needs to really be focusing on that, on those factors. And also I think the government needs to be looking at the current curriculum and the assessment systems within school and the extent to which they create poor mental health, such as exam stressors. You know, lots and lots of children now are very stressed with the curriculum and stressed with the examination system Mm. and, you know, they're tested, um, they're tested and tested and tested and the curriculum is becoming harder and harder and harder. So actually, why isn't the government addressing Mm. those factors? Yeah. So I feel I've got kind of mixed feelings about about this, really. Yeah, I find that interesting because, um, you know, children, it is that thing, isn't it, where schools, they have to kind of pick up the the flack. And I remember Mm. being in a reception class once. um, I was on long-term supply and I I just needed to go into reception for a day because reception was not somewhere where I really wanted to set foot because I was secondary trained. I I was just like, oh, I feel so out of my comfort zone. Oh, really? Well, my daughter's in the nursery class now, so I'm kind of getting it from the other end. Um, but yeah, they, they they brush the teeth. And I even spoke to the teaching assistant about it, and she said, oh yeah, this is what they do now, you know, in case they don't do it at home. And I thought, what a responsibility for a four-year-old. So it's the same thing where, you know, you kind of, it's almost like giving the responsibility to the child. Like, mm. we're giving you this in school, but you need to make this work in the other two-thirds of your life. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. that is that is a massive responsibility. How can a child be in control of that? You know? Yeah, and, and often we um, we focus on the child. So so the interventions are all around the, the child. Mm. So the intervention, the child becomes a site of, you know, intervention. Um but actually, the interventions I feel need to be around the society that that we mm. that we're subjecting children to, yeah. um, and you know why we're we not intervening, you know with with you know within issues such as poverty. Why we're we not intervening with the curriculum. Why why we're we not intervening with the assessment system. Mm-hmm. Why are we always placing it on the child mm-hmm. and and focusing on that level of intervention rather than the bigger factors that may, may be causing these problems. Yeah. Um, like resilience, for example, we hear a lot about resilience interventions in school. Um, children go on resilience children take resilience interventions and they're told that they need to be more resilient well actually is it the child's responsibility to to become more resilient because we know that other factors affect children's resilience so um, you know if they've got access to social networks if they've got access to a supportive family Mm -hmm. um, and supportive teachers if they've got access to um, a positive school environment if they've got access to an education policy that actually creates positive well-being, mm. that will enable them to be more resilient. So we, we, you know, we can't just place it on the child mm. and say actually the child needs to become more resilient because, you know, resilience is relational. It depends on our relationships yeah. with other people and with with our our school context and with society mm. as well. Yeah. Thank you. Do you know? I'm just going to tell everyone on the podcast that just before the interview, you said, oh. I can't talk a lot. I need to go away. I can about things I'm passionate about. Well, and this is exactly why I'm here. Um, so thank you so much. Um, right. Okay, then. So 
Which school-based interventions do you think are effective? Well, um, I've done a couple of uh, sorry, a couple of evaluations mm-hmm. um, in the last couple of years um, around physical activity, and they've been really, really successful. So, um, one intervention that I I was involved in with Cambridge, it was mm-hmm. Cambridge United actually, Cambridge United Football Club, yeah. um, was actually um, the football club um, and the sports coaches yeah. um, actually going into school and delivering the mental health curriculum to students in year eight and nine. So actually, it wasn't the teachers delivering the curriculum. Mm. It was actually the the football club. And that was really, really powerful. Mm. Um, I think for a number of reasons. So firstly, um, it was the fact that it wasn't delivered by teachers and they could have, the the children could have a more informal relationship Mm. um, with the sports coaches. That was really good. And secondly, these people were their role models. So actually getting footballers to come into classrooms Mm. and talk about their own mental health and their own experiences of depression, Mm. um, that was really powerful. So what we did was we measured the children's mental health literacy, Mm. in other words, what they know about mental health, before the intervention and after the intervention, Mm. and it was really successful. Um, So actually involving organisations such as football clubs, um, you know, and other organisations that are really sort of interested in mental health I mm. think it's really powerful um, another one was peer mentoring um, so training children to become peer mentors mm-hmm. that was really powerful training children to become good peer listeners so um, what we know is that children would rather talk to each other than talk to an adult mm, yeah. you know if they're experiencing poor mental health they're worried that if they talk to a teacher the teacher might have to tell somebody yeah you know and, and refer that on so um Training children up in the skills of listening mm-hmm. so that they know how to be a good listener, but they also know when to refer a situation on. Yeah. That seems to be really powerful. Yeah. Um, so peer listening schemes um, or peer mentoring schemes are really, really um, effective. Um, some schools are using, obviously, mindfulness, mm-hmm. um, and that seems to be doing quite well. Um, seems to be quite effective in lots of schools. Um, I think we need to do a more robust evaluation of mindfulness, actually. Mm. Um, some schools say it's really good. Some schools don't really um, say it's having an impact. So I think we need to know more about mindfulness. Um, I also think it, sometimes it depends on the way it's delivered or what you're actually doing for it. Yeah, you know, yeah, some, yeah. I mean, my, my first thought of mindfulness is um, I've seen online that there's a load of colouring sheets yeah, and, mindful and, colouring. Yeah, this is it. Just print out a few. Oh, just print out a few um, colouring sheets, and that's your mindfulness done. Yeah. Um, and it's. I guess it depends how it's done. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think what is really effective, apart from the interventions, is the whole school approach to mental health. Can Can I talk about the whole school approach? Gosh, can you? So, so the whole school approach to mental health. If the whole school approach is implemented, it should reduce the number of children who need to be referred on to mm-hmm. to external services. So. Um, the whole school approach, basically, um, and we use the model that's that's been um, developed by Public Health England mm-hmm. um, in 2015. So it starts with the leadership and the management team of the school mm-hmm. really championing mental health mm-hmm. and thinking about it at a very strategic level. So, you know, is there a policy around, around mental health in the school? Um, you know, is mental health something that's discussed in senior leadership team meetings or governor's meetings? Mm-hmm. Um, for children, young people, and for staff. Yeah. Okay, so so thinking about it at a very strategic level. Um, and then we've got to think about the school environment mm-hmm. that we're creating. So 
is the school environment positive? Does it value diversity? Mm-hmm. Does it enable children to experience a sense of inclusion um, and, a, and a sense of positive well-being? So we've got to think about the school climate mm-hmm. um, and then the school curriculum and teaching and learning. So actually, what are we teaching children about mental health? Um, and this is now coming into schools um, in September. So in September, all schools will have to provide um, children with a mental health curriculum. Mm-hmm. So actually, what are we teaching children about mental health? So, And what does that look like in the early years and key stage one and key stage two and secondary? You know, how does that progress? So in the early years, we might be teaching children about feelings and emotions and, you know, how to regulate their feelings and emotions. Um, but then when do we... At what point then do we start to introduce children to the language of mental health Mm. and specific mental health conditions? So we need to think about age appropriateness there. So giving children a mental health curriculum is really, really key. And that's that's part of the whole school approach. And that will reduce the number of children who who need to come through um, with with specific needs, because actually a good mental health curriculum should be giving children strategies to manage their own mental health. So teaching them how to manage stress and anxiety and depression, etc. And it should be educating children about self-harm, etc. And social media. Um, And then there's obviously staff training and staff development. So, you know, making sure that all staff can, can identify the signs and symptoms of poor mental health and know how to identify it and spot it. Um, is key in other members of staff as well as pupils in staff as well as pupils yeah yeah Yeah. Um, staff well-being is part should be part of the whole school approach Mm -hmm. as well and then the school needs to have a system for identification of need now I talk a lot about this so how do schools identify children and young people with poor mental health so often it's children who demonstrate visible signs Mm -hmm. you know so they might notice um, a child self-harming um, they might notice changes in mood or changes in behaviour. They might notice changes in appearance. So often it's it's like a reactive approach. They notice something. Mm-hmm. But with mental health, it's often not a visible sign. No. You know, it can be hidden away. So a mm. child could be depressed, but be functioning as though they're absolutely fine. Mm. You know, a child could be self-harming and they'll go to all sorts of lengths to actually cover that up. Yeah. You know, so... When we think about identification, it can't just be based on a reactive approach. Mm. You know, we need to think about universal screening so that all children go through some kind of screening process. Mm. Um, and that will pick up then. If, if we've got universal screening, that will pick up children who need support. Mm-hmm. Then we need to think about interventions and we need to think about interventions for groups of children who've got similar needs or individual children who need specific interventions. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we need to think about working with parents. So this is part of the whole school approach. So we know that actually um, there might be a link between uh, child mental health and parental mental health. So, you know, um, what is the school then doing about, around supporting parental mental health? Is the school signposting parents to services, mm. you know, within the community? Is the school actually... Um, doing sessions so that parents can manage their own mental health you know mm. running workshops to support parents with managing their own mental health um, but also is the school supporting the parents to manage the mental health of their child at home yeah. so that actually if the child is anxious or stressed or depressed that the parents have got some strategies for managing that yeah instead okay. of making it worse yeah and then there's obviously then um 
the last part of the whole school approach that is thinking about referral and having a clear policy on, on when to refer children on. Yeah, okay. Okay. So this is to be... Sorry, that was a long-winded answer. No, to... but that's brilliant for people. Um, so this is in place for September. You know, what... That's a massive piece of work for schools. Um, you know, have you got any tips or places to go to kind of start them off if they haven't started already? Um, okay, so the relationships and and sex education guidance, which will be statutory, well, it's relationships and sex education and health, health education, education yeah. um, which will be coming into schools in September, um, outlines the content that schools um, need to teach. Um, but the problem with mental health is there's lots of information on the internet, but it's all kind of disparate, it's spread all over the place, and um, what we need to do is pull that together. Now, there is a good website called the Mentally Healthy Schools website, so okay. if you just Google Mentally Healthy Schools, mm -hmm. there's a, it's a brilliant website, and... Um, it's great because it pulls together all the different sources of information. It gives teachers background information about different types of mental health. It's got videos. It's got lesson plans. It's got how to have a conversation with a child if they make a disclosure. So that's a really good resource. Um, but it is specifically for primary schools, not secondary schools. Right, okay. Um, but there, again, it, um, even for secondary schools, it's still quite a useful resource. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, looking on looking on websites such as Young Minds, that's a good place to start. Um, but the problem is there's so much information for teachers, um, and teachers are around. teachers are really really busy, and they haven't got time to do all that searching. No, we need to pull it together. Yeah, and also it's, I think it it, it can be a frightening thing to teach as well, just because. Because as we've said before, sometimes we don't really have the right thoughts when we think of the words mental health, and also. You know, are we are we worried that we're going to get it wrong, um, mm. when it's such an important thing as well? And I think, mm. you know, I feel like I've learned a lot more about mental health over the last few few years, as a lot of people probably have. But actually, one of the reasons why I feel like I have is because the more I learn about it, the more I realise. Um, so I had an emergency section with my first child, and do you know what? Nothing really went wrong. Um, but the more I realise now, I'm like, I talked about that every single day for 18 months. Um, and, and I realise now that actually, had I have not had a supportive uh, husband who just listened to me talk about it every day for 18 months, then I might be in a different situation now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's the key thing, isn't it, um, with mental health, is that, you know, talking about how you feel yeah. is really, really key. And we need to get boys to understand that they need to talk about their feelings. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's still that stigma, there's still that sort of stereotype with, with, with some boys that they feel that they can't talk about their feelings yeah. and emotions. And, you know, we need to break down those stereotypes because it's mm. it's absolutely imperative that that young children know, and well, children and young, young people know how to talk about yeah. their feelings and know the importance of talking about their feelings. And I think that the one thing that I've learned, and obviously everybody's different, and I'm not saying this is right, but the one thing that, that I've learned is that talking about it once isn't enough. And, and you know, you kind of, I've learned that if if somebody wants to talk to me about something again and again and again and again and again, that I need to listen. Um, because it could be that you need to talk about it an awful lot um, to kind of get over it. Yeah, yeah. And I think we need yeah. to get better at listening. Yeah. You don't necessarily need to be an expert in, in the thing that someone's talking about, but yeah. you just need to be there for them and, yeah. and listen to them and actually empathise with them. Yeah. And that's key. And, and, you know, we need to we need to sort of 
support young people to become better listeners so they can listen to each other, but mm. also support teachers to become good listeners as well. Yeah, and it's difficult, isn't it? I think, you know, as parents, when, when I sort of think back to my own experience as well, it's easy to sometimes jump into the defence of maybe the other person if somebody's sort mm. of got an issue, mm. but that's really unhelpful. Mm. Um, you just want that empathy. Um just, yeah, I understand how you're feeling and that's okay. Mm, mm. Um, and just validating those feelings. And, yeah, and, that it's yeah. okay to feel that way. Yeah. yeah, I think that's really important. Yeah, and I think that's probably one of the most valuable things I think I could do as a parent of, you know, I mean, Hattie's three and she hasn't really said that yet, but what I am aware of now, because I feel maybe I kind of suffered a bit from this, I just want to know that what I'm saying is also allowed to be said, mm, um, mm. you know, and, and not kind of jump into the defence all the time. <clears throat> um, okay, so I've got loads of questions from the, the team, <laughs> so they're okay. really good. This time, Lee's written you loads of lovely questions. So he says, what can we do in primary education that helps prevent discrimination and bullying when children go to high school? I think that... It's really important that we educate children about bullying and the effects of bullying mm. very, very early on, so, so in primary school. Um, it's not just enough, is it, just to, just to deal with bullying when it happens and, and to have yeah. that reactive approach. We actually need to educate children about bullying and you know, what bullying is and the harmful effects of bullying, and that yeah. needs to be you know, part of, of PSHE. Um, so when, when children... Are you talking about when children actually go into high school? Yeah, I think he means, you know, what can what can we be doing in primary school so that when we get to secondary school, they're not? Right, so I think that there's a couple of things there. So um, when, when children experience bullying, they need to know um, how to respond to that. So they need mm. to know how to ask for help yeah. in that situation. But also it's, it's about educating young people about the bystander effects as well, so that if they observe bullying... Um, discrimination and violence etc that they they know that their responsibilities um, you know as somebody who's observed yeah, that is to true, actually yeah. report that so so that's really really key mm -hmm. um, but obviously then children need to understand um, about bullying and the harmful effects of bullying um, and also the potential consequences of being a bully yeah yeah no I do agree with that I think I don't think when I was at school we really learned anything about you know the effects of it mm, and i think mm. you know that could have been useful yeah. for quite a few people not me <laughs> now what i what i love about the new um relationships and sex education guidance is there's a really really big focus on um respectful relationships um so res you know re what does respect look like in terms of friendships mm. how to be respectful within friendships but also how to be respectful within intimate relationships and there's a really big mm. focus on um, things like themes such as coercion and manipulation and mm. domestic violence as well yeah. um, and I think it's great now that children are going to learn about those things yeah. so that they can identify them really really early on and spot them when it's happening yeah because sometimes I guess you know I imagine children can, can go on to be adults and maybe six seven years later when they start thinking about these things or learning about these things they look back and go hang on a minute that could have been this or that could have been that. Mm. Um, because at the time, you know, things are new, you're vulnerable, you just, mm. you don't realise, do you? But I think also when children are going into secondary school, so when they're, I mean, we know that the, the, the transition from primary school to secondary school 
is a particularly um, vulnerable time for young people. Mm. So, so they're transitioning to a you know a new school, a bigger school, a new way of learning, a new curriculum, a new way of assessment, mm. um, and also they're meeting new friends, etc. So the, the freedom levels of some of them as well. Sorry. The freedom levels. You know, sometimes they were never allowed to be free and now yeah, they've got yeah, to get the bus yeah, themselves. Yeah, and yeah. yeah, and they've got to turn up at lessons at certain times, etc., yeah. in certain places. And so they're experiencing multiple multiple transitions all at the same time. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's, you know, when if, if transitions are experienced smoothly, that can result in good mental health. But actually, if some of those transitions are difficult and rocky, mm. um, then you know, that can result in poor mental health. So we need to be aware of those transitions that young people yeah. are going through at that time. Yeah, and I guess if they're feeling vulnerable at that time as well, they might appear vulnerable, which then could make them more of a target as well. It's just a, it's just a horrible cycle. Mm. I suppose people mm. could be nice all the time. Mm. So Lee says, what advice would you give to a teacher who realises that they're LGBTQ+, but specifically trans? Yeah, so, I mean, there's a couple of things that could be going on here. So... Um, what we know from the research is that LGBT teachers, LGBTQ teachers will will either pass off as being straight, um, some, sometimes within schools, mm. um, or they'll cover it up, mm. basically. So they'll, they'll, they'll engage in strategies to either pass it off, they'll pass off as being straight, or they'll cover up their sexuality or gender identity because they're worried about the reactions of colleagues and students and parents. Um, the literature refers to this as knitters, splitters, and quitters. Um, so, oh no, sorry, that's that's something else. So, so a knit a knitter is when they when they knit their personal identity with their professional identity. So they join them together, right? Um, and they, you know, so they're they're okay with who they are, yeah. And they're actually out within the workplace, yeah. Um, a splitter is someone who splits their identities, their personal identities and professional identities. So they actually don't bring their personal identities into the classroom at yeah. all. Yeah. Um, and some teachers are quitters, so they, they're so stressed by the whole thing that they just leave the teaching profession altogether. Mm. Um, so I think, first of all, what advice would I give to a teacher? Sorry, I'm waffling. Um, no, it's great. What advice would I give to a teacher who who is thinking of coming out? I think... It would initially be to 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 suss that situation, um, and and to get a sense of actually would this be a safe place for me to come out, mm. um, and you know what would potentially be the effects of this because, you know, we w what I don't want to say is that everybody should be out, mm. um, because it's a very personal decision and if yeah. they if they choose to come out. And then they're subjected to those distal stressors, yeah. prejudice and discrimination. That would be awful. Mm. Um, so they've got to suss that situation and think, actually, um, is this a safe thing to do? But also, it's complex because we know that teachers perform better if they can be authentic, if they can be themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So if they're not allowed to be themselves at work, if they're not allowed to... Um, you know, disclose their identities, their personal identities, their sexuality or gender identity, it will impact. Mm. And it will impact on their teaching, it will impact on their well-being. So I would say that what they need to do is talk to colleagues, they need to talk to a trusted colleague, and they need to talk to the leadership team, they need to talk to somebody on the leadership team, maybe the head teacher, because actually they're, you know, 
they are protected by the law. Yeah. They're protected by the Equality Act. So actually, you know, legally, they, they cannot be discriminated against because of their sexuality or gender identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that if, if you've got a teacher who identifies as transgender and that teacher decides that they want to transition whilst they're in post, or if they're LGB and they want to come out, then it's it's a case of them going, they need to go and talk to the leadership team, and they need to say, actually, this is this is actually what's going to happen. I'm going to, I'm going to disclose my identity. I'm yeah. going to come out, and they need to lead that process. So they need to say, this is how I'd like you to manage it, because it's not a case of the school. The school shouldn't actually be saying, right, we'll do this, this, and this. Actually, that that individual should be able to um, lead that process really, so that they actually tell the leaders how they want it managed. Yeah. Really, um, and then they need to. They need to be confident in the fact that they will be protected by the equality legislation mm-hmm. and they need to be confident that they won't experience, they shouldn't experience any discrimination because they're protected by that equality legislation. But I think, I think they need to feel confident in managing that process. Mm-hmm. So they need to have a network of people in the school they can talk to. Yeah. They need to find out the people who they, they trust the most and talk to them. But at some point they, they may need to talk to the leadership team. Um, particularly if they're transitioning whilst they're in post, because the school will then need to think about how they manage that process and how they communicate that with staff, to staff and to pupils and to parents. Um, But that teacher needs to be in charge of that process so that they lead it, Mm. really. And they're almost almost telling the the school leaders, I want you to manage it like this, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. That was... um... An amazing answer. Okay, so he's got another question for you. I feel like he's interviewing you for a job. (laughs) (laughs) So, some parents don't think that children should learn about LGBTQ relationships at a young age. So what do we do to fight the stigma? I think there's a couple of things here. So I think, first of all, parents don't often don't understand what children exactly will be learning. So they automatically associate LGBT with sex. Mm. So they think we're teaching children about sex and that's not appropriate. Um, this is not about teaching yeah. children about sex at all, is it? It's about teaching children about identities. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's about teaching children to respect difference and differences, mm-hmm. um, which is fundamentally a part of the Equality Act. Yeah. You know, so part of the Equality Act is that we need to foster good relations between different groups of people, mm. whether it's race or whether it's disability or whether it's to do with sexuality or gender, that we should be fostering good relations. Because the Equality Act is not just about dis- preventing discrimination. Mm. People always think it's to do with preventing discrimination, which it is, but, but also there is Section 149 of the Equality Act, which is about fostering good relations. Mm-hmm. So... My view is that it's very... I have a very simple view on this, which is that if it's age-appropriate for children to learn about heterosexual identities at the age of two, you know, and and heterosexual relationships and, you know, heterosexual marriage at the age of two, why is it not appropriate for them to learn about same-sex relationships and same-sex marriage um, at the age of two? Because actually... Lots of children will be will be actually from same sex parents. So that you you know you might get a three year old who's actually got two mums or two dads. Um, so actually, why is it not age appropriate that we talk about their family, mm. like we talk about any family? Mm. So I 
I question this thing of age appropriateness because I always wonder what it means because yeah. is it because they, they think that actually we're talking to children about sex? Actually, we're not talking to children about sex. We're just talking about difference and we're difference. talking about identities yeah. and relationships and respecting people who are different. Mm -hmm. and, and actually the fact that, you know, within the world, they will meet people, um, all sorts of different people, and actually we want them to respect that. Yeah. Um, so I think my view is that we should be teaching children about different identities right from the beginning. Mm. You know, I think that we should be teaching children about LGBTQ plus identities right from the beginning. You know, and we can do this through stories. There's some fantastic stories now um, where children are introduced to kind of non-traditional family structures. So, yeah. you know, they might be introduced to stories where, where a character's got two mums or two dads or even a single parent or, you know, so that children understand, children grow up understanding that actually this is the world um, and that in the world we have different types of people from different types of backgrounds, um, but we have to respect everybody. And I think it's, it's, I mean, how many children now are in a class where there isn't at least one child who doesn't have a traditional family background? Absolutely. You know? Yeah, yeah. so, um, you know, and, and actually, if you're doing a topic on, you know, um, weddings or marriage or whatever, and, and a child brings in a photograph to, to show, you know, that their, their family is two dads or two mums, why should we not validate that? We, mm. should, we should be validating that. We should be talking about it. Yeah, it's really important. And that child needs to tell their story, absolutely. Yeah, because otherwise, if the ch if children don't feel that their family backgrounds are respected, they won't feel included in that school. If all we ever talk about is heterosexual relationships and heterosexual marriage, then and and actually they're from a family where there's two mums or two dads, and we don't talk about that, then they won't feel included. They won't have a sense of belonging. They they could possibly develop poor mental health. Yeah, as yeah. a result, so. We have to just we have to just see this as being completely normal. And as a person, it, it doesn't make them different either. You know, mm. it doesn't kind of have any bearing or effect on mm. on them. You know, children don't have any issues with this, by the way. No, children are absolutely fine with this. So children don't have the prejudice that adults have. Yeah. Okay. So more questions from Lee. I'm very sorry about this, but but he, he does write good questions. So he does. Um. So, is the curriculum of what we teach inclusive enough? Wow, that's a good question, isn't it? <laughs> okay, it's a big question. Um, right, so I think there's a couple of things here that I would highlight. So, for example, we have a code of practice for special educational needs that talks about how we should support individual children basically with special educational needs. Mm -hmm. So it talks about the process um, of supporting children with um, special educational needs. So it talks about diagnosis, intervention, um, working with parents, working with agencies, etc. When do we actually, in the curriculum, educate children about disability? Mm. So we don't. Basically, yeah. so that we have a code of practice that focuses on if, if we have children with SEM, this is what we do. But we don't, when do we actually educate children about disability and, you know, the, his, the history of people who have disabled identities and how that's changed over time? Yeah. That needs to be embedded within the curriculum so that children start to understand that 
that actually the, the disabled identity is not a tragic identity. And maybe part of the problem is that we're that we're kind of relying on parents to educate, and maybe that's why we're getting such yeah. a varied. Yeah. Um, so we need to be we need to be educating children about about disability. All children need to be educated about, um, you know, different types of uh, of disabilities, and they also need to be educated about um, the fact that actually people with people with disabled identities can achieve brilliant things, mm. such as the Paralympics. Yeah, you know, they they need to not see disability as a tragic thing. Yeah. Okay, so that's one thing. So so there's not enough. Um, coverage of you know of disabled identities within the mm. curriculum mm. you know we need to be introducing children to disabled role models mm. we need to be challenging this this view that disability is a tragic thing um we need to be educating children about race and mm. race equality you know through the curriculum not just dealing with i mean obviously we need to deal with racism but we need to be educating children about race and we need to be building that through the curriculum mm. and embedding issues of race equality through the curriculum. Um, and in the same way with LGBT, we need to not just be tackling homophobic bullying and biphobic bullying and transphobic bullying. We need to be educating children about um, non-heterosexual identities um, and, and also their histories as well. So you know with with disability with race with sexuality with gender we need to be teaching children about their histories and how they've moved how, you know how how perceptions of of that particular group have changed over time mm. um and it needs to come through the curriculum not just through doing oh let's do an assembly on lgbt yeah. it's got to be embedded and threaded through the curriculum i think so i think the curriculum could be more inclusive sorry go back to the question was it is the curriculum inclusive is it inclusive enough um so it's not inclusive enough for other reasons as well so so yeah so so yeah issues of race disability sexuality and gender are not embedded sufficiently through the curriculum um and issues of mental health need to be further embedded through the curriculum so we need to be teaching children about mental health and not just through pshe yeah. but through the curriculum so actually, what are we doing in English about mental health? What are we teaching in art? So how are we using art as a vehicle for exploring mental health? Yeah. You know, um, what are we teaching children in, I don't know, music about, how can we link music mm. into mental health, for example? Um, the curriculum is increasingly um, academic and it's increasingly been restricted um, and therefore, it hasn't been inclusive to children who who have, shall we say, talents and strengths and interests in other areas of the curriculum. Yes, yes. So children who are sort of more vocationally orientated, mm. um, actually they've been marginalised for many, many years yeah. um, because the curriculum has focused on the core subjects. It's focused mm. on English and maths um, within primary schools and it's focused insufficiently on the broader curriculum, so mm. history, geography, music, art, you know, DT. All these subjects have been marginalised. Mm. And then in secondary schools, it's become an increasingly academic curriculum. Mm. Now, I'm pleased that Ofsted have recognised this, and in the latest Ofsted framework are now saying that actually schools need to be providing a broader curriculum. Mm -hmm. But I still think we've got a long way to go. Yeah. Really, because yeah. we've seen this increasing... Um, academic focus on the academic curriculum, and we've seen the you know the curriculums become 
more and more restricted over many many years so no so it hasn't been particularly in primary schools it hasn't been inclusive no no thank you right he's got one last question for you it's a long one right so obviously we've already talked about this but rsc becomes compulsory in september um and he says the government website says that it has concerns about school leaders being reluctant to report issues regarding parents or etc because it may be seen as le- uh, weak leadership so how do we support slt in areas where like differing faiths backgrounds ideologies are at a high level so that they don't feel like their ability to lead is being questioned well i think first of all um it's getting the message across that it's not weak leadership mm-hmm. um actually um I mean, what we saw, what we have seen in Birmingham with the parental protests um, and also in other places um, last year is that we saw the tension between religion and sexuality Mm. coming together. Um, Now, the issue there is that we had a school in Birmingham, Parkfield Community School, that were doing a fantastic job at promoting an inclusive curriculum. So... um, they were doing lots around um, LGBT. They were using the No Outsiders curriculum and then parents were basically objecting um, and saying that they disagreed with, with this curriculum being implemented. Mm-hmm. Now, the issue, I think, was the fact that... Well, there's, there was a few issues, but one of the key issues is that the school didn't... St- the school didn't get sufficient backing from Ofsted mm-hmm. um, and from, um, from the DFA. Now... Um, since then, Ofsted have come out and they've they've actually you know been really vocal about this and actually said that you know this needs to happen that mm. schools need to be actually teaching this um, and the DfE have produced guidance but at mm. the time when this was happening in Birmingham, the guidance didn't exist. Yeah. Um, the DfE guidance wasn't there. So now the 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 government guidance actually isn't brilliant because what the government guidance says is that schools need to um, consult with parents. Right. which is fine but actually what if the parents don't want to consult what if they mm-hmm. just want a total like veto um, on the curriculum which is actually yeah. what what some parents want so i think i think schools need school leaders actually need more support from local authorities and from ofsted and from the dfe um, because actually ultimately they have got to implement this curriculum mm. all schools have got to teach children about inclusive relationships. All schools have got to actually teach children about um, LGBT identities. Um, And parents won't have the um, ability to opt children out of that because it's relationships education. Mm -hmm. They can only opt children out of sex education. Mm -hmm. So I think the the key message there is that school leaders need to understand that this is nothing to do with weak leadership. This is actually around the tensions between religion and sexuality. Now, what school leaders need is they need real guidance on how to have a conversation with parents mm. and how to develop consultation. So there's a couple of things here. So parents may object on religious grounds and they may say, actually, um, our religion doesn't believe in this, so therefore we don't want you teaching this to our children. Okay, so it's really important that schools then provide a supportive response to that because Ultimately, we have to, um, the Equality Act requires schools to um, 
and, and children to be respectful of difference and, and to be respectful yeah. of different people's values and beliefs. So actually what we need to say then, the way we have that conversation with parents is to say, well, you know, yeah, we understand that actually within your religion, that's not acceptable. Um, you know, and, you know, that those are your values and those are your beliefs and those are your religious um, beliefs so, and, and that's fine. But actually within, within the broader scheme of things, within the Equality Act, we have to teach the Equality Act. And the Quality Act says that we have to foster good relations between different groups. So we can't foster good relationships if we're not actually talking and highlighting to children the fact that there are people with different views and beliefs. So we have to actually um, foster those good relations. But secondly, fundamental British values that schools have to teach, one of the fundamental British values is the rule of law. And within this country, the rule of law um, is that same-sex relationships are lawful, same-sex marriage is lawful, so actually we also need to teach children about the rule of law. So, so actually this is about, we're not undermining the religion, you know, and we're respecting where you're coming from in terms of your religion, but, but within the broader um, scheme of things, within society, this is actually legal, and therefore we need to teach children about what is legal and what is not yeah. legal. And ultimately, this is about, you know, Yes, this is actually um, not not sort of um, lawful or, or allowed within your religion, but actually your children will meet LGBT people. They will meet people within school who identify as LGBT. They will meet people in college, in further education, in higher education. They will meet people in employment. And ultimately, this is about showing respect mm. towards everybody. So actually, yeah. you know, what we want to do is foster good, inclusive values that are rooted in positive relationships. So actually, this is not about saying to your child, is it? It's not about saying, we want your child to be LGBT. Yes. Or to yes. believe in, L you know, to, to exactly actually adopt right. that way of life. This is actually about fostering good, inclusive attitudes yeah. and actually fostering good relationships. You know, and, and ultimately we understand that mm. this is not allowed within your religion, but actually this is broader than that. This is about actually um, supporting your child to be part of society yeah. in which they will meet other LGBT people. Yeah. I also think, I mean, I'm not an expert, but as, as part of the multiple religions, it's surely it's not that they can't learn about it, it's just that it's it can't be their identity. Yeah, so I, so I think actually, ju just like we teach, we have to teach children about all religions. Yeah. You know, actually... Um, we're having this conversation in the car on the way over. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, you know, you would teach Hinduism, but that doesn't mean to say that you expect that child is going to go away and then be yeah. Hindu. So, so actually, the, it's really, really, in, very, very important that, that actually parents understand that we are not trying to impose a particular identity or viewpoint yeah. on your child. This is actually about preparing children for life within a socially inclusive, modern, contemporary society mm. in which they will interact with people who are different. And, and therefore, it's really important that we treat everybody with yeah. respect within yeah. this society. So I think, yeah, uh, I don't think it's weak leadership at all. I think, you know, parents parents some of these issues with parents are very challenging for schools to deal with mm. and and ultimately if you are a school within specific cultural communities then you might be worried about the parental backlash that's not about weak leadership 
because actually schools legally have to teach this. Mm. That's about in those situations when that happens, actually somebody coming into the school and 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 you know from the DfE and Ofsted and, and actually addressing that those issues and supporting them. Yeah, thank you. That was such an amazing answer. I I feel like that's going to really help a lot of leaders. So thank you. Um. Okay. Right. Before I get to my uh, quick fire questions at the end, so Lindsay's got a question now. Lee's finished his. Um, and she says, <laughs> she says, so Lindsay works with us as well. She says, my sister-in-law currently transitioned socially and is waiting for surgery. My children gained an uncle overnight and never even questioned it when we told them. That, that made a wonder. Children are wonderful, aren't they? They're yeah. brilliant. Yeah, because they're just accepting, aren't they? Um, so this made me wonder why there is a stigma. Surely the younger they are told and the more inclusive you know, we become. So I feel like this is not really a question but I thought it was um, good to kind of mention and, and if you've got any sort of points you kind of want to make on it. Why is it still stigma? So um, so it hasn't been an issue for the children, no. but has it been an issue for other people? I have no idea. Okay. Like, I, I can only assume so. Yeah, yeah. So I think, I think there is still this, there's, well, there's still a fear of transgender people. There's there's a fear that somehow they're contaminating society that they're you know that there is there is still this fear within within some parts of the population, um, and I don't think it's necessarily an age thing either because I think you know people people either are prejudiced or they're not prejudiced and I don't think that's necessarily to do with age you know I I, I know I've got friends who were in the seventies who were very very open um, about about different identities and you yeah, know my, equally my you can meet younger people years, yeah. you can meet younger people who were prejudiced so um i think there is still a fear um that actually somehow um transgender people are dangerous and there is definitely still a stigma and there's also a view as well i think that they're a drain on society um you know that they're taking away resources they're taking away um you know they have to take time out of work for example to to have the surgery they have to um they have to draw resources from the health service so i think i think there's this this view among some sections of society that actually they're they're a negative influence and and it's just because that they're seen as being different and people have got this fear somehow and we need to we need to smash that because because ultimately I always think difference and diversity makes the world a better place, you know. And ultimately, people should allow should be allowed to be who they are yeah. and live their lives in the way they want to live their lives. Um, and but that you know we can't deny the fact that there is prejudice, and all this illustrates is that we have more to do now. Mm. You know the fact that we are now doing more education with with children in school around LGBT. The fact that we're talking about transgender. We hope that actually what we'll see in the future is we'll see less and less prejudice coming through mm. um, and that when people are exposed to prejudice, they'll actually challenge it. Um, that's what we want. And I think, you know, there's been lots of great work that's been going on over the last, say, five or, yeah, I'd say like five or between five and ten years on LGB um, identities in schools. And we're seeing a shift in attitudes, but there's more to do on transgender there's a lot more education to do on transgender because that is the that's the area that schools are really struggling with, mm. um, you know. So they're struggling with it on on lots of levels. So 
they're struggling with it in terms of what to do when the child identifies as transgender or when a teacher identifies as transgender. So that's, you know, they need more support. And they'll say, well, we want to do the right thing, but we don't quite know if we yeah. are doing the right thing. Yeah. And, you know, schools need more guidance on that, yeah. on how to support young people who identify as transgender. Um, but also, schools need much more guidance on what to educate children around transgender. Mm. So what should be in a transgender curriculum? You know, what should we, what should we actually be teaching children about tra- tra- transgender? And how do we teach it, actually, in a way that's accessible? So I think, you know, we haven't quite got there with that. I think there's much more work to be done in terms of educating children about transgender. Um, And schools, actually, when I talk to schools, they really want to do this and they really believe in it passionately, Mm. but they want to do it right. They don't want to get it wrong. And I think it's going back to that um, thing that we were talking about before, you know, when we were talking about children with special educational needs, you have to try it sometimes and sometimes you're not going to get it right straight away Mm. um but obviously it's such a sensitive subject that i think that is frightening for schools Mm. but we kind of have to you know like you say it's not there yet but we have to we have to try it so that we can improve on it and reflect yeah yeah and i think i think also you know if you're going to implement any curriculum so an lgbt curriculum there has to be that process of consultation with the parents so the parents understand this is what we're teaching mm. we're not teaching children about sex they actually parents need to see the lesson plans they mm. need to see the resources that teachers are going to use um you know and and the vast majority of parents won't have any issue when they see them because mm. a lot of the resources are about challenging gender stereotypes yeah um but I think also it's about working in partnership with students. So actually, if you have transgender students, it's about actually saying to them, sometimes saying to them, actually, you know, we don't know what to do. We need your help in this. Actually, can you guide us? What would you like us to do? Yeah. You know, how would you, what can we do that would make you feel more included and get the yeah. children to and young people to support the school in that journey? Mm-hmm. Although the onus shouldn't just be on the young people, should it, to, no. to carve that path? Um you know, there are things that schools should be thinking about anyway, like gender neutral mm. um, uniforms um, and gender neutral toilets. Um, but I think, you know, always, always doing things in partnership with children so that you're doing it in the way they want to, they want it to happen. Mm. You know, schools need to be um, thinking about y- using children's, well, not just thinking about it, but doing, using children's preferred names mm. um, and that, you know, because we don't want children being repeatedly misgendered. You know, so if their name is on a register and the school isn't allowed to change their name because legally they, they haven't changed their name, um, there are options for, for schools to actually put on the, you know, on the record, prefers to be known as, mm. so that when they go into a classroom, teachers know what name to use. Um, yeah, but that's... That's important, I, I think. I, I didn't know that was a thing, to be honest, because... I mean, we use nicknames and things all the time. Yeah, they're not they're not legally allowed to change the name on the, um, register. On the school record system. So that when oh, right. so when registers are printed out for teachers in, in class, they right. get the, so I guess they, if it's they a get the, teacher as well. They get the birth name, but they can put prefers to be known as. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so, but then it's about training staff as well because because some staff, you know, I I've spoke to transgender young people and they've said oh, the teacher, the teacher refused to use my preferred name. You know, the teacher absolutely um, refused to use my preferred name and didn't use my preferred pronouns. 
Um, so it's again, there's there's an issue to do there with teacher education, teacher training around mm. this area. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So I've got. Four... I don't know whether I've answered the question. Oh no, it's been a really good conversation. It's funny because so um, my husband's uh, co- cousin's wife is is a teacher, and we were talking about this interview. Uh, she's in secondary, and and we were talking about uh, you know the training she's had about preferred pronouns and things. So it's interesting to sort of see the secondary side as well because kind of get that from them um... yeah we, we can all do really simple things like you know on our emails we can just put pronouns on you know my pronouns are and we can all do that everybody can do that and how simple is that it doesn't cost anything mm. but actually that demonstrates a commitment to inclusion that it's was really what they'd actually told, told me that they've, they've implemented at okay. their school um put it on the bottom of their okay. emails yeah um okay so if you could wave a magic wand then how would you solve the life work balance problem for teachers well, we, so we know that teacher stress um, is an issue, isn't it? Um, it's an issue not just in this country, but also worldwide. Yeah. It's a global issue. Um, and we know that actually, you know, the, the work-life balance problem causes teachers to go off sick. Yeah. Um, but then we also know that, that lots of teachers feel so guilty about going off sick. Yeah. Um, they worry about letting down their classes and, and letting down their colleagues and schools that they actually continue working when they're really stressed mm-hmm. um, this is called presenteeism mm-hmm. rather than absenteeism so presenteeism is, is in, presenteeism is when they continue working when really they should be off yeah um, and not very effective and not very effective and it impacts on them and also the, the children um, how would I solve it well I think it's about schools developing manageable policies around planning mm-hmm. um, and around marking and feedback um, particularly and you know the government have been talking about this now for two or three years and they've been producing really really helpful guidance but actually it's not doesn't seem to be finding its way into all schools yes um, so there was you know we still hear stories of of teachers that have been made to do ridiculous amounts of planning and yeah. ridiculous amounts of marking and feedback etc um we need to go much more to to giving children um, live feedback within lessons, mm-hmm. um, you know, giving children quick verbal feedback and and sometimes actually, um, you know, just focusing on marking a sample of books, mm-hmm. identifying the key issues, yeah. and then in the following lesson addressing those key issues in your yeah. teaching rather than yeah. thinking that you need to mark all thirty books. Yeah. Um, we don't. We need to reduce, get rid of this obsession of thinking that we have to mark every single piece of work. Mm. I think that's really important, and we need to stop micromanaging teachers by saying that marking has to be done or feedback has to be done in a particular format, mm. um, or that planning has to be done in a particular format. So actually, yeah. if teachers just want to make a few notes and use bullet points, that should be absolutely fine. Yeah. If teachers want to handwrite their planning rather than word process their planning, that should be absolutely fine. Yeah. We need to give teachers back their autonomy Mm. and sense of professionalism so that they do because the majority of teachers are really really hard working they don't they don't want to do a bad job you know um so why are we constantly micromanaging them and Mm. saying that they have to produce 10 page lesson plans oh i know i know why you have to write it out as a script or write an essay at the bottom of children's work that they're not going to read you know we just need to give teachers back some autonomy we need to stop obsessing on teachers handing their planning in for for scrutiny all the time by senior leaders you know we need to just 
you know, allow teachers to, to plan and, yeah. um, and assess and do feedback in the way they feel is appropriate for their classes and for their children. And I think just by doing that, it will, it will be really, really massive um, in reducing teacher workload. Yeah, I guess for me, it's just it's the filtering down. Sometimes I feel like Ofsted send a tweet out and everyone's expected to know, oh, you don't have to do this anymore, but it, it doesn't filter yeah, down because no. uh, no, it's and, not and, official. And, and Ofsted really are not interested in your lesson plans. They're yeah. not interested in the amount you write in children's books. They're not interested in any of that. They just want to know if children are making progress, yeah. basically. And, you know, we have to, we just have to stop policing teachers in that way. Mm. And we have to give teachers some autonomy um, mm. about about their own working lives and, and the way they want to work. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so where do you think education needs to go in the next 10 years? Gosh, um, I think, personally, I think we need to get back to the broad curriculum. Um, particularly in primary schools, I think we, you know, we need to give children um, a rich curriculum mm -hmm. because actually if we're not giving children a rich curriculum, if you imagine the jobs that are going to be out there in 15 years time, 20 years time, we can't even predict the jobs that now children will be doing in 15 years time. But we do know that they're going to need a range of skills, mm. aren't they? And they're going to need to be adaptable. They're going to need to be creative. They're going to need to work as part of teams. Mm. They're going to need to be able to problem solve. So the curriculum needs to be giving children those skills. Yeah. You know, it needs to be giving children the ability to problem solve, work as part of teams, collaborate and so on, and to be creative and adaptable. Now, at the minute, I feel that because the curriculum focuses on exams, actually there's too much focus on children learning through powerpoint mm. so children go from one lesson to another to another to another and they're just giving a powerpoint presentation yeah. that isn't going to develop the skills that children need no. to survive in the in the 21st century in the mm. world of work so we need to get back to the broad curriculum we need to get back to being creative in that curriculum to getting children working in teams to getting children problem solving you know and collaborating and all of that you know, and then we need to think about technology and we need to think that that we're really making the best use of technology within within teaching because technology is, you know, just growing and it will grow in the future. Mm. Um, you know, and if you think about the way technology has grown, we've got we've, over the last few years, so we've gone from like the Internet Web One, um, where we just kind of went on websites, mm. Web Two to looking at social media and interactivity and communication mm. and now web three where basically um you know we can control our our heating system through our mobile phone and mm. um, we control control our burglar alarm system through our mobile phone and we can do everything yeah. you know the internet is everywhere isn't it now so we've gone through these various iterations of the web and actually i still feel that schools are still on web one yeah really and we haven't really embraced the, the potential of technology within learning and teaching. What's the most interesting thing about that? Um, so as we're filming right now, um, quite a few countries around the world have, have closed the schools because of the coronavirus, and, and we're kind of waiting, aren't we, to find out if it will happen. So I think we're roughly at the point where Italy were 12 days ago, and they've got, I mean, I don't know how many deaths it is, but it's, it's over 300. Um, and what's interesting is, I've kind of done a bit of research online and a lot of these countries are already geared up for home learning using the technology. Mm. But in the UK, not that many teachers mm. already have this mm. in place. Mm. You know, so, I mean, we've been trying to encourage teachers to get that in place, but 
to teach the children in a few days, you know, for all we know, schools could shut in two weeks if, if it and was we, the same And we thing. won't actually be geared up for that. No, this is it. That's um, what I mean. So, yeah, it's in really, really... In the UK, we are not really geared up important. for this. You know, so so actually, the technology of the future will 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 possibly be, you know, children doing much more of that, um, children children accessing technology from home, mm. um, you know, and I th- I just think we need to we need to focus more on that because that's the way yeah. of the future really. Yeah, I agree, and I just find it interesting that you've said it now because actually, I would have said, oh yeah, we're we're not behind with technology, but. After this is now happening, and I'm watching around the world, and I'm thinking, hmm, maybe we are mm, um, behind mm. with technology. Well, we definitely are in schools, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. in school. You in know, schools. and especially when we have these blanket bans on mobile phones and things within within schools. Mm, yeah, and and I find that interesting. It's difficult because you kind of have to manage it. But in in our workplace, everyone always has the mobile phone out because we have Microsoft Teams, and it's easier to reply on your phone, and then you're on your computer. And yeah. You're on your so phone so and... actually, what we want to do is we want to kind of replicate the work environment within school, don't we? Yeah. And yeah. Otherwise, how are we going to set children up for life? You know, within the workplace, yeah. within the modern workplace. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's an interesting one, but I think we need to get back to the broad curriculum. We need to embrace technology more within schools. Um, we need to be making sure the curriculum is giving children the, the skills they need for the future, not just an academic curriculum. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think that we need an assessment system that recognises that broader range of skills and, and recognises a broader range of strengths and talents, yeah. not just recognising maths and English. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so who was your favourite teacher at school and why? My favourite teacher um, was, I have to say, my history teacher. Uh, am I allowed to name them? Of course you are. Um, so she was called Miss McPherson. Um, she actually, she probably, she was a very young teacher at the time, so she, she'd probably not been qualified very long. Um, she might be in her 50s now. She might be heading towards retirement. Um, but she was fantastic. She was a history teacher. She was enthusiastic. She was passionate. Mm-hmm. Um, but she had a great relationship with, with the students. And that's that's the one thing you remember. You forget what they teach you. Although she did instill a passion of, of history in me. But you forget what they teach you. But you don't forget how they treat you. Yes. And that's the key. And, you know, I've never forgotten that. I've never forgot. She So she empowered me. She motivated me. She enthused me. Um, but I used to look forward to going to her classes because of the relationship that she'd formed with the students. Yeah, thank you. I hope she's listening. Hope I she hope she that is. Yeah. You inspired me to become a professor. <laughs> so well done, well done on that one. And um, my last question that I always ask is, what, do you, what did you want to be when you grew up? A teacher, always. Always, always, always a teacher. And that's what you became and... Not only did you become a teacher, but you became a teacher of teachers mm. and shaping the education of the country. Yeah, yeah. I used to have a bedroom. I used to pretend that my bedroom was my classroom. Mm-hmm. I used to have fictitious children. <laughs> <laughs> very, very sad, really. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me. I mean, I'm, I'm excited to get this episode out because I actually think, I mean, some of the things that you were talking about in terms of you know, when you were talking about school in Birmingham, I think that's going to be really helpful for a lot of leaders because sometimes I feel like, you know, even with the coronavirus right now, it's like, it's almost like we're, we're sitting ducks waiting just to find out what the news from above is and there's no gap in mm. in, in mm. between of the guidance and, and the kind of things that we are allowed and not allowed to do. Um, yeah, yeah. So thank yeah. you. Okay. Thank you thank so you. much.
I'm sure you'll agree that Jonathan has given us all some food for thought and helped us to think about getting ready for the RSE curriculum. I really like the idea of children being trained to be great listeners. I think after being locked down for so many weeks, we could all do to learn this skill and be on the receiving end of someone practising it well towards us. Sometimes, as teachers, we worry what people would think if we are not doing everything ourselves. And I'm not saying that training children to listen to each other is the only intervention, but it benefits all involved too, those needing to talk to someone and those listening as well. You'll find everything that Jonathan talked about in the show notes. If it's the first time that you're listening to the Teachers Podcast, check out our other episodes for some more great lessons. We'd also love to see you in our Facebook group called The Teachers Podcast Community. This episode is live on YouTube as well, so don't forget to subscribe to the channel and I'll see you next week. Thank you for listening. The Teachers Podcast is in association with Classroom Secrets provider of high quality and affordable teaching resources that children love and teachers trust. To find out more, visit classroomsecrets.co.uk.